So we will please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we will be finishing the story of Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion. Thank you. We'll begin at Acts 9.17 and ending in verse 31 this morning. Mainly focusing today on the change that happened in, in Saul's life. Before we do that, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with the text today. Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would, again, open our hearts and minds. We are oftentimes complacent and willing to have them closed so that we can't hear the truth. We would, even now, as Your children attempt to exchange the truth for a lie because we think the lie feels better. And so, Lord, help us to see your truth, to be convicted by your truth, to be taught and instructed by your truth. Lord, Lord, help us to love your commands, to love your law, to love you more and more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I considered this message today and consider the change that takes place in Saul's life, we have this very vivid switch that goes off in him. And it made me think of a lot of times in movies how you have the bad guy who changed to a good guy in the movie. And there are lots of instances of this, but one of my favorite is in the movie Terminator 2, you know, the old 90s movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a cyborg who comes back from the future to protect a kid who, and this kid's responsible for saving the future, so he has to come back and protect him from another robot thing, not really a robot so much, but this thing that is sent from the future to kill this person. And so Arnold and friends are basically trying to save mankind from the robots and lots of violence and explosions, you know, a fun-loving family film. Now, if you've seen Terminator 1... You're probably thinking, okay, how is this going to work? How is the Terminator now a good guy? Because remember, Arnold was was a bad guy in Terminator 1. What changed him? Does he have some sort of like change of heart? Or does he have feelings? Is, did, his, uh, did he get somehow swayed to the good side? No. The answer is really easy for Arnold the robot Terminator. He was reprogrammed. The robot that runs a computer program can only do one thing, what it is programmed to do. Computers cannot do random. They can't. They don't have initiative. You can always guess what a computer is going to do. It does exactly what it's programmed to do. When someone's computer breaks, what will they always say? Well, my computer's doing this. No. Your computer is following a program. It cannot do anything outside of what it's been told to do. It does not have a mind of its own, thankfully. Though the Terminator may seem like a bad guy in the first movie, like a good guy in the second movie, he's actually just a program running a script. Um, very simple. Obviously, the same cannot be said of people, right? We do random. We have initiative. We create things on purpose. We choose to destroy on purpose sometimes as well. 
We have volition, to use a technical term. But the Bible, over and over, tells us that before Christ, we are evil. Able to only ever do evil continually. Genesis 6.5 says, Romans 3, no one seeks after God, no one understands, no one does good, no not one. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. So before Christ, even though we have volition, we only ever choose one thing. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship the creature rather than the creator. That's who we are. In order for there to be a change in a person, we need Christ. That's it. We need a new heart. We need a new program. To use the previous illustration. With that new programming, we are able to do good for the glory of God, for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to focus on the change that takes place in Saul. We're going to read this very visual picture of this happening. Something like scales falling off of his eyes. All of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, both talk about this change that happens to someone when they go from belief or from unbelief to belief. This change is initiated by God, of course. We learned that last week and qualifies that the person takes on <clears throat> afterward and or the qualities that the person takes on afterwards are normally directly the opposite that they had been previous. Last week, we looked at the nature of Saul's conversion. This week, I want to look at again what's happened afterwards. I think it's instructive to us because I think many times we want to hold on to that old self as a sort of security blanket. Remember last week I read from Daniel 4 from Nebuchadnezzar. I think many times we, we are like Nebuchadnezzar and we think, well, we have the kingdom before us. What could go wrong? God has other plans. With that in mind, I want to cover two main ideas today, the change in our hearts and then second, how, our, how that change can affect others. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 17. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by the night and led 
let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared him or to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a quick review. Saul was headed to Damascus. Remember, he had letters to the synagogues there. He was planning to weed out the Christians so that they could arrest them or execute them or whatever. They represented, uh, this represents the first of many great persecutions of the church. This one was from the Jewish leadership directly. The tables were soon turned on Saul, of course. He comes face to face with his creator, incarnate Lord, Jesus, who tossed him off his horse, blinded him, and sent him into the city. He begins doing what comes natural for him. He starts to pray. Probably doesn't know what to pray, but he's praying. Ananias is told in verse 11 of chapter 9 that he would find Saul praying, which is what he was doing. Praying is something that all religions do, so this isn't necessarily anything. So Ananias is suspicious, which we would expect. But he follows the Lord's command nonetheless, and that's where we are at in our passage today. So that brings us to the first point, the change in our heart, in our hearts. Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias walks in, proclaims that the thing that Jesus told him to say, you can imagine that Ananias is probably still a little skeptical about what's going on, but then something miraculous happens right in front of him. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. Something like scales fell from his eyes. We don't really know what's going on here. The first thing that I think of when I hear scales over the eyes are reptiles. But that's probably not what most people think about. But it is kind of odd. Some have speculated these scales even caused long-lasting damage to Saul's eyes. He mentions his bad eyesight several times throughout the New Testament. Whatever the case, we get the idea that something physical fell off of his face. And all of a sudden he was able to see strange occurrence the representation is very clear though he's able to see not just the things that are in front of him Ananias and whoever else was there but he's able to see in a way unlike he had ever seen before the scales in many ways represent the change that had taken place on the inner side as well he was immediately baptized 
in order to show that this conversion had taken place. He goes out in verse 20. And immediately he's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. He immediately goes out and proclaiming the Word of God. Remember, Saul was not a, an untrained man. He was a Pharisee. He was a learned, educated man. He immediately goes out and begins preaching the Gospel. What does the Bible tell us about this type of change? Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a familiar passage to us. Oftentimes we focus on the first part of the passage where Isaiah is before the Lord, very familiar. Well, Isaiah is given a commission by the Lord, and we've all heard the verse 8, here I am, send me. But look at verse 9 and 10. This is the message that he's supposed to give to the people of Israel. And he said, go and say to this people... Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this dull, of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Not a very comforting message. You won't hear, or see, or understand. Is the message to Israel. Your rebellious hearts are broken. This is why you are being sent into exile. Why then, if this is the message that Isaiah was sent to preach, is Isaiah sometimes called the gospel of the Old Testament? Turn with me to Isaiah 32. This is just one of many passages that I could have picked out this morning. We read together one. From 61 as well. Isaiah 32, keeping in mind this idea of blindness and, and not being able to see. And again, keeping in mind the idea that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Look with me at 32 verses 1 through 4. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. What's going on here from Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 32? A change. Who is instituting this change? The king that will reign in righteousness does this. Changes the hearts of his people so that they may hear and see and understand. We see, we see this same theme in the New Testament. Absolutely. Over and over again. Turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter five. This is from the Apostle Paul. Who better to speak about this than the one who experienced this so vividly? Second Corinthians chapter five, starting at verse fourteen. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so what's happening? There's this shift. No longer living for themselves, but for the one who's for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. There's this change in the way that we see people. No longer according to the flesh, even though once we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Why? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We no longer regard Christ as we once did. We no longer regard the world as we once did. We see things differently. We see things as He does. Keep going. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God initiated this in us, reconciled us through Jesus Christ to himself. And then now what have we been given? That same ministry. That is, verse 19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We now, having experienced this reconciliation ourselves, have been given this same message to go and do likewise. Do we not see this with Paul or with Saul? He's not Paul yet. Absolutely. He was reconciled to God. He was an enemy of God. In his backpack were letters so that Christians would be killed. And now he's going into the synagogue and what's his message? Jesus is the Son of God. How does that happen? Through God himself. He has that ministry. We go from preaching the gospel of ourselves, preaching the gospel of look at me, look at who I am, We are the only God that can save us. We trample over anyone and everyone to get what we want. Right? That's how we were. Let's be honest. It's all about what we want. The world is taught to embrace this idea of evolution by natural selection. It makes sense to behave that way then, right? Dog eat dog. If you want something, take it. This is the way the world operates. To say anything else is crazy. But we go from that to preaching Christ who did what? Gave himself for people who hate him and hate everyone else. Sure, the unbelievable is capable of doing good things. But ultimately their hearts are incapable of pleasing God. Their good works amount to nothing. But in Christ... Those good works are able to please God. Why? Because Christ pleased God. 
Our good works only point to the one who did the best work of all, saved us, this ministry of reconciliation. And as the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians 5, we go from preaching a message about ourselves to preaching one on reconciliation, the message that says, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That message has power to save. Why? Because it is the very word of God. What did Saul immediately begin preaching? Jesus is the Son of God. That was his message. Don't let that escape you. Saul was saved. What was his first sermon? Jesus is the Son of God. wasn't very complicated. And that continued to be his sermon over and over until he was finally murdered for his faith. What's the message are we preaching for the unbelievers? What message do we have for each other? Is it anything but that? Is it anything other than Jesus is the Son of God? If we are preaching anything else, it is a false message. That brings us to the next point. Our change affects others, or how our change affects others. Of course, all who heard Saul were confused. Look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon his name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? Didn't he come here to have us arrested, and now he's preaching the name of Jesus Christ? But Saul kept it up. Verse 22, He increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He kept at it. The same message the very simple message from his Old Testament, mind you, that Jesus was the Christ and he confounded all who opposed him. And as is the custom currently as we're reading through the book of Acts, the Jewish leadership did not like this and they tried to kill anyone who was preaching the truth. So now they're turning the tables on Saul himself and attempting to kill him. In Galatians 1, you don't have to turn there, but we read that Saul was in Damascus in that area for around three years. So this is not a short period of time. I think maybe your first reading through this, you want to think, well, that didn't take them long to get over that. Well, it it was three years that he was there preaching the gospel day in and day out. And so plenty of time passes with him preaching the gospel. And so plenty of time passes for them to get angry with him. And... So they do, they get angry, verses 23 through 25. They have to initiate this kind of Hollywood escape uh, where they kind of, through a hole in the wall, lower him down in a basket. Always get these vivid pictures of what's going on here, almost like a video game or something. Um, One of those things you kind of hope that maybe in heaven we get to go back and watch. Like, yeah, that was really neat. So they just lower him down, and he goes from there, and he goes to Jerusalem where the apostles are. Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, specifically were told in Galatians is who he went to see. And they were afraid, rightly. But Barnabas, remember Barnabas from the end of chapter 4, the one who sold his plot of land to the apostles so that they could share all the, the proceeds from that. Barnabas stands up and he gives testimony about Saul. He had obviously become a leader at this point in the church. He stands up for Saul and 
Saul is able to, what the text says, go in and go out, meaning that he's, he's, he's there comfortable with him at this point. And he continues to preach the gospel there. And so guess what happens? Another plot to kill him. And he's sent away so that they can't do that. Wherever he goes, he preaches the gospel. And notice what happens. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Hopefully you see this and you know that we've read this over and over again in the book of Acts. And why is it happening? What message is causing this to happen in the church? This peace and this comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit and and them being multiplied. The gospel. That's it. The preaching of the gospel is causing this to happen in the churches in that day. So what does this mean for us? I think the meaning is very plain. When the gospel takes hold of our own lives, we see this amazing change take place in ourselves. It follows very closely then, when the gospel takes hold in us, it should affect those around us. They should see it. They should hear it. They should understand it. We we see two effects here, and I think it's the only possible things that can happen as a result of preaching the gospel. The first one is a negative response. The enemies of the Lord want to kill him. And the second response is this. There's those who are converted. There's those at the church, in the church, that are being built up in peace, being comforted in the Holy Spirit, that are being multiplied. Of course there are going to be those that when they hear the gospel, they seethe all the more. And they hate the Lord. And they hate you because they hate the Lord. But it's also going to cause conversion. Those two things should be happening. There's really not a third. Translate that to our current situation. Do our enemies want to kill us? Sometimes, maybe. But most of the time, they just want to make sure that we are completely silenced. Why does the world hate Christianity? Which is, by and large, peaceful outside of a few crazies that I would not give the label Christian. Why do they hate Christianity? by and large, turn on the news. They always want to know what the Christian thinks so that they can make fun and expose. But yet, they embrace Islam that only wants to blow everything up because it hates God. It would rather die than say, Jesus is the Son of God. That's it. Why does the atheist keyboard warrior continue to post anti-Christian garbage all the time and anti-God things all the time, even though he claims that God isn't real. They're constantly against the church because he hates God. Hates him. But what happens when that keyboard warrior or that Muslim come face to face with the Son of God? They're thrown off their horse. They profess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. We have evidence in Acts 9. We could all probably give testimony to that happening in real life. Someone we know who was completely anti-God and went the opposite way. 
first and foremost, we should remember that in ourselves. So how does this change us? The question is, what message are we preaching? For many, and I understand this, I do, I get this, for many, the thought of preaching or teaching folks about Jesus vocally and out loud is tough, and I get that somewhat. So let me put it to you another way. What are you saying when you aren't talking about Jesus? If people were asked to write a hundred words about what you stood for, if the people that you know were asked to write a hundred words about what you stood for, what would they write? That's kind of a cheesy thing, I get that. But what we see in Scripture is that the life of a believer is such a light to those around them that others are changed. They're either entrenched, continually entrenched in their unbelief, and we see that, or they're converted and shown the peace of Christ. This has been a real challenge for me personally this week because I tend to be sarcastic and pessimistic. This text, among others, has been really challenging me, challenging to me in that regard. And you might want to say, well, that's just who you are as a person. But is that who Christ is? If we believe in the type of change that happens to a believer, we have to know that change has happened in us, absolutely. And in that, we cannot be complacent with traits that aren't very Christ-like. Is the world different because of who we are in Christ? It's a question that we should ask ourselves. This isn't a method of self-condemnation at all. We have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But I think we should reflect, how do others see and hear Christ in us? So in conclusion, in this passage, we have the beginnings of the great things that Saul will do in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of Jesus Christ. And that's the key, brothers and sisters, that I want you to hear. We do not do this in and of ourselves. We don't do it alone. We do it in him. We have Jesus Christ, the one who said he would never leave us or forsake us. Who said that he would always be at the right hand of the Father doing what? Interceding on our behalf. He said also, I will send you a helper who teaches us to save what to say even when we don't know. So brothers and sisters, let us be ones who show the life that we have in Christ Jesus. Whether that be through the words that we say or the things that we do. Let us be preachers and teachers of the gospel in word and deed to the glory of God for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we admit readily that we resist change in our own hearts, much less thinking about the change that we might elicit in those around us. And so, Lord, help us to see our ministry as one of reconciliation, bringing others to the place where they can be reconciled to you. Lord, help us to understand that not everyone is going to have that response. In fact, many will turn from you. The road is narrow. And so, Lord, help us to be comforted in the Holy Spirit to find peace 
that surpasses all understanding in the gospel that you give. It's in your name we pray. Amen.